Hard to believe a week from today, we'll be sitting here celebrating the empty tomb. Looking forward to it. That video will be on social media today. If you want Todd and I to invite your family and friends rather than you doing that, just share that link and hopefully uh, maybe some of your family and friends who maybe don't come to church a lot or maybe will come on Easter will want to come. It's going to be a powerful, powerful weekend. Also, uh, I want to tell you the 1015 service is full for Easter. So if you haven't signed up, you're going to have to sign up for a Saturday night service or a Sunday morning that's not 1015. So just to let you know that. Also, uh, we need some help and we're asking you to attend one and serve one. I know with family and different obligations and gatherings that you have, it's hard. But if you have some margin in your morning, uh, we could use people uh, holding little babies and hanging out with little kids. Even if you don't like little kids, it's only 45 minutes. We're not asking you to take them home. The parents will come back, I think, I promise. <laughs> but if you could just, the 9 o'clock or the 1130, uh, text that word Easter serve to that number on the screen or tell our chapel kids team. Also, in a couple weeks, the Saturday following Easter, we're going to launch our chapel kids ministry again on Saturday evening. But I'll be honest with you, we cannot sustain it if we don't have more volunteers. And so if you can give up a Saturday night once in a while or a few Saturday nights and you want to serve in our chapel kids ministry Saturday evenings, uh, I would love for you to tell our Chapel Kids team. They are praying for leaders right now. So thank you for that. Now, to start off our morning together, I want to take you to one of my favorite books of the Bible. I say that every weekend, but it is really one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the book that tells us about our history, our church history. It's the book of Acts. And the author, Luke, is writing in uh, Acts chapter 8 about this man named the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this man is a treasurer for uh, Ethiopia, and he is traveling from Ethiopia all the way down to Jerusalem. And he's doing that because we either think he just converted to Judaism, or he is seeking what God and who God really is. So he makes this trek down to Jerusalem, and wouldn't you know it, I put that like this, wouldn't you know it, Philip, which is Jesus' disciple, interacts with this Ethiopian eunuch. Look what happens. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the man replied, well, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak for his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch, he looked up at Philip and asked, Now tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? I imagine Philip smiled and began with that scripture telling him about the good news of Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, if you've ever thought about sharing your faith, you're dreaming that it goes just like this. Here's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's opening the scriptures to Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ. And as he's reading it, he's thinking to himself, this can't be about Isaiah. It has to be about someone to come. And Philip says, let me tell you about that someone. And Philip leads him into an understanding of Jesus. And he puts his faith in Jesus. And then he is baptized right after that. Incredible story. But this man comes to Jesus from the Old Testament. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, does something interesting. 
He's about to go into the synagogue and read since he was a rabbi. He's about to take out a scroll. And the scroll is Isaiah 61. Again, written 700 years before Jesus. And look what happens. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be free, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then Jesus casually said, hey, the scriptures you've just heard today, it's been fulfilled this very day. And normally you want to unroll the scrolls and teach about what Isaiah is saying. And Jesus is like, let me read it. I just need to sit down. And everyone's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, by the way, he's not talking about Isaiah. He's talking about me. And Jesus drops the mic. It's all he had to do. Jesus, looking back at Isaiah, said, this is about me. All of scripture is about Jesus. The New Testament points back to Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's why we've spent these last three weeks in a message series that we've called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Because the theme of scripture is the pursuit of our savior to his people, whether the Israelites or the church. And so today what we wanna do is finish up by looking at prophetic literature. Now when you think about prophecy, I'm assuming you're probably thinking about futuristic predictions and you would be partially right. The Old Testament prophets make up 10% of futuristic promises. The other 90% of the prophecies are about God tapping someone on the shoulder and say, hey, I need to get a message to my people and I'm gonna use you to do that. So whether that's Amos or Micah or Jeremiah or we just saw Isaiah, he speaks for God to get a message to his people. Now in Isaiah, the theme of Isaiah, if I had to break it down, is this. It's about God's grace, about his love, about his mercy towards those who say they believe in him, but they live differently. They turn their backs on him. They walk away from him. And God is saying through Isaiah, look, I want to bring you back. It's about my grace. And we see the crux of that in Isaiah 53. The same passage that the eunuch read and asked Philip, is this about Jesus, is the passage that we want to look at today. And while Isaiah spoke to the Israelites predicting Jesus, today Isaiah speaks through us today, to us through his word, to point us again to Christ. So what we're going to do for the next few moments, I just want to sit in this scripture. It is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. And all I ask you to do, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I want you just to offer up a one-sentence prayer to God and just say, God, speak to me through this text. So do that silently for a moment. I'm going to read this out loud. You'll see yellow portions of scripture if you feel comfortable I would ask that you would join in and read aloud with me. This is all of Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. 
He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly, con unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants and that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a good life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. What a weighty passage to sit under this morning. An incredible passage that has so much to teach us. I want to look at three observations with you of the text to bring home the meaning that I think Isaiah meant in the beginning. Now there's a lot of themes that we could hit, but one of the most predominant themes that you can't help but see in this text is that we are lost. Isaiah, he likens humans to sheep. I don't know how much you know about sheep, but let me tell you this, they are not the smartest animal in the animal kingdom. I read a story recently of a farm in Turkey. These farmers, these shepherds were out having breakfast. So they left their sheep thinking they would be okay, forgetting that they are sheep. And somehow, and I don't know how this happened, so if you're a farmer, please enlighten me after this. Somehow the sheep select a leader. I don't know if it's between bars, like there's this communication, but some dude or some lady is the leader. Well, the leader of the sheep, while the shepherds are out having breakfast, decides to go the wrong way and falls off a cliff. And you would think the other 1,499 sheep that are gathered with that sheep would say, oh, I'm not going there. But every one of them went off the cliff. Now, this is kind of crazy. Please excuse this, but 400 of them died. I'm really sad to say that. The other 1,100 didn't. Do you know why? Because they fell on top of the other 400. <laughs> Cushion their blow. <laughs> One went off and everyone else went off. All they had to do is stay close to the shepherd, but then they diverted the plan and went off the cliff. And I read that and I think, how close are we to doing that? What if we aren't as smart as we think we are? You know, from an early age, 
We tell our kids, and we've been told, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You can become anything you want to become. And those are so true. The problem is, from an early age, we think we control our destiny. We control life. We get to choose where we go. And while that is true, my question to you today is, how do you know you're going the right way? The sheep thought they were going the right way too, and they fell off. How do we know we're listening to the right voice? How do we know we, not, we haven't been duped and are going the wrong way, and though it looks good now, it's going to end in disaster? I am convinced that we are kept so busy that we can't really take an inventory of our lives. For if we did, we would not like what we see. So I want to take an inventory with you this morning. I simply want to ask you, how do you know the path that you're on is right? And if it's wrong, how are you going to avoid going off the cliff? You see, Isaiah tells us that while we think we're right, and while we think we know where we're going, we're more like sheep than we want to admit. For Isaiah tells us again in verse 6, all of us are like sheep. We've strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. All the sheep had to do is stay close to the shepherds and they would be fine. All we would have to do is stay close to our shepherd and we would be fine. But because we're prideful, because we're arrogant, because we're selfish, because we think we're better than everybody else, we say, God, thank you for this path, but I get to choose my own. And you're right. But you can't convince me that you know for sure that the path you've chosen is right. That's why Isaiah is saying, look, I want to get your attention. Everyone is lost, though they think they're okay. Now, we're not just lost passively, as if it happened to us. We choose that path. We are the ones that have wandered. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. I want you to imagine for a moment that a time where you were rejected in your life. I know for me, you wouldn't think this. I was rejected by many, many ladies along the way. I see you smiling. Maybe for you, you put yourself out there in a relationship or maybe you tried to put yourself out there in a friendship or you tried to do something where you would try to impress your boss or try to, put a, try to get a new job. Whatever that is, you put yourself out there. It was truly yourself and you were rejected for that. How do you feel? If you're like me, you don't want to put yourself out there again. You're afraid if I do this again, how do I know it's not going to happen again? And so what do we do? We protect ourselves. It's the reason why many of us in this room, we have a smile and we're acting like we're ourselves, but we're not. We're fake. We're wearing a mask. Because we've incurred rejection along the way. And if I were Jesus, I would be like, look, I put myself out there. You rejected me. I showed you the path. I clearly laid it out. Not only did you say no to me, but you pushed me aside. And therefore, since you rejected me, I reject you. Even though you've said no to me and, I, and you may want another chance, I'm not going to give you another chance. God could say that. And he would be right to do that. 
But thankfully, God is not like us. For we are conditional human beings, while God is unconditional. You see, though we reject Jesus, he will never reject us. For verse four says, he carried our weaknesses. He bore our sorrows. Grace says this, even though you caused the weaknesses, I will carry them on your behalf. Grace says, though you brought sorrow upon sorrow on your life because you chose that path, I will do whatever it takes to carry your sorrows, to bear those, to bring you back from the cliff. He doesn't do this because he feels pity for us or feels sorry for us or he's bored. He does this because he wants to rescue us. God has been on a rescue mission from the beginning. He's playing the greatest game of cosmic hide and seek that has been ever seen. And while we continue to hide and hide and hide, it's in those crevices and in those dark moments and in our lives as we're heading towards the wrong way that God says, I want to find you and bring you back. Aren't you grateful for that? If you recognize, if you can get over yourself for just a little while, like I have to do, all the time, and say, okay, I see things my way, God, now let me see it your way, and you can clearly see something's wrong inside, which maybe means I'm lost because I've turned away from God, and if God would do something for me, maybe I will turn back to him, but he has to do it, because I don't know how to get back to him. And friends, he did it. He did it. More than we can ever imagine. That's why we must embrace the great exchange. Martin Luther came up with the term, but I'm pretty sure he borrowed it from Paul and Isaiah. Here's what the great exchange looks like. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Later in verse 11, Isaiah says, and because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear their sins. This is why we call it the great exchange. Our rebellion, he took on. Our sin, he took on. Our shame, he took on. He was beaten for it to the point of death because he wanted to make sure we don't fall off the cliff. Here's a great example of what this looks like. Simple drawing, but it really makes sense. Our unrighteousness for his righteousness. It's not an even trade. We get the better end of it. But Jesus took it anyways. See, our unrighteousness is what Isaiah calls our sorrow, our weakness, our sin, our shame. The weight of it. I mean, think of the thoughts that consume your mind that even if your spouse or your best friend heard them, they probably would want nothing to do with you. Those thoughts, Jesus took them. The addiction to ourselves that plays out in so many other addictions and fears and struggles, Jesus took those on. Your past that you're ashamed to even talk about, that people know about, that you would think disqualify you from God's love, Jesus took that on. The way that you've treated those that love you the most, including God himself, Jesus took that on. And in exchange for that, he gave us his righteousness. It was our trash for his treasure, our crud for his crown. 
His righteousness is his perfection. His righteousness is his perfect standing with the Father. He gave us that and return took our sin so we could be made whole again. What a beautiful exchange. It's one thing to hear about it. It's another thing to embrace it. And that's what he did on the cross. You know, when I've read Isaiah 53, oftentimes I focus on the first six, seven, eight verses. And I was looking at this whole passage. God pointed out a verse that I've really never seen before. That I always thought Isaiah was all about Good Friday, Jesus and his death and on the cross. But boy, so much more. For he says in verse 12, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. Every one of us in this room has a guilty pleasure. The only difference is I'm about to tell you mine. And you're not allowed to judge me. This is like Planet Fitness, baby. This is a no judgment zone. And if you judge me, I'm going to make you tell your guilty pleasure. I still watch WWE wrestling. I know, it's really embarrassing to say. But I still do. It's a guilty pleasure. It's fun. What I love about wrestling is the underdog story of the man who comes out with the championship belt and then the guy that should never win and they fight and they fight and they fight and at the end, the referee counts one, two, three and the underdog wins and the referee holds his arm up and gives him the championship belt saying, you defeated your opponent for good and that's exactly what the resurrection is. Jesus, though he did not deserve to die, died and he was buried and then he rose again and God held his arm up and gave him the championship belt saying you are victorious forever. And not only are you victorious, your people who trust in you get to be victorious too. The only question now that you have to wrestle with is if it's true. For Joshua Ryan Butler puts it this way. The question we're faced with before the risen Christ is whether we're willing to stop running and be found. If it's true we're lost, it's true that the great exchange is true, that Jesus took on my shame and my sin and my guilt so I could have the crown. If it's true, and if it's true that he rose again, will I stop running away and potentially fall off the cliff and cling to the one who's been pursuing us all along? That's the question. I ask you to pray, even if you didn't, it's okay. Before we read Isaiah 53, I just said, ask God, what is he trying to speak to you? And I wonder, if you're a Christ follower, I wonder if this text pointed out something in your life. This past year, obviously, has been a lot of ups, but probably more downs. And I see that, especially in my faith, how easy it is to get irritated with my family and whom I'm supposed to love. It's, ir- it's easy to not want to get up in the morning or stay up late and read my Bible. It's easy not to pray. It's easy to start judging people who don't agree with me. It's easy to sling stones against those who are different from me. It's so easy. I wonder if this text is Jesus inviting you back. That without you even knowing it, you just slightly have been going off path and you're lost. If you've said yes to Jesus... He is your good shepherd. He wants to bring you back to his path. All you have to do is ask him to do that. For some of you in this room, you're explorers, you're skeptics. And if that's you, we would get along really well because I am a skeptic as well. 
The problem with skepticism is it's easy to hide behind a lot of different theories and a lot of different questions and not truly look for the answer to them. And so what if Isaiah 53 is truth that he's expressing to you, this is who you are, but this is who God is, and he wants that relationship with you. If that's you, and you're truly a skeptic, but truly want to know the truth, I dare you to pray this prayer from John Stott. God, if you exist, and I don't know if you do, I'll be honest. If you can hear this prayer, and I don't even know if you can, I want to tell you that I'm an honest seeker after the truth. And if you're the truth, show me if Jesus is your son and the savior of the world. And if you bring that conviction, the weight of that truth to my mind, I will trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord.